Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And let's begin, as we always do, by reading the text together. It says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our contact toward you, our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What an amazing passage. And what we're seeing in this particular text here is Paul continue his defense of the genuineness of his and Salvanus's and Timothy's ministry. He's continuing his defense of the genuineness of their ministry to the Thessalonians. And now he's going to be doing so using two familial or parental metaphors or pictures or illustrations to illustrate this genuine spiritual leadership. He's again defending the genuineness of their ministry now by using two pictures to illustrate their genuine, authentic, godly spiritual leadership. So in essence, Paul here is describing genuine spiritual leadership. This is his defense, and this is what he describes that they were, and he obviously knows that this is an approved way of leading spiritually. He's saying this is who we were. And so this is the point of today, and it's why I've entitled today's message, Genuine Spiritual Leadership. Genuine Spiritual Leadership, because Paul here is giving this defense and this picture of what it is to be and of what they were. And Paul here is talking about he and the other ministers that were with him, and this is what they were. And it becomes obvious that if this is what they were and this is what he is defending, then this is what ministers should be like. This is an acceptable, genuine, blameless ministry. And we see pictures and descriptions here in this text. 
And you know, we really do see pictures and descriptions and expectations of spiritual leadership all over the pages of the Bible, of what the minister should be, of what the pastor should be, of what the spiritual leader must be himself, of what he must look like, what he must do, what he must be like, and how he must do it. And throughout the scriptures, we're told what the spiritual leader is to be. There's that wonderful portion of scripture in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, where Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, tells them what they are to be. There's the extensive and straightforward expectations of the pastor and the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. There are the words that we see in Hebrews 13. There are words in James chapter 3. These, the exhortation in 1 Peter chapter 5. Of course, there's the clear instructions, uh, an example of godly spiritual leadership in the Gospels. Jesus tells his disciples what they are to be, and he shows them by his example. And then throughout the entire Old Testament, from the very beginning, God has set standards for those who would lead his people. And the particular chapters that I mentioned in the New Testament books and the Old Testament uh, as a whole, it's just really the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we can understand in regards to God's teaching on the subject. It pervades all of Scripture. His spiritual leaders are important because they have the potential to lead people towards God or away from him. And so God expects that the teaching on this subject be followed. If it is truly to be a ministry of God and a minister who is approved and and supported by God, that these instructions would be followed. And time would really fail us to point to God's condemnation of the opposite, right? Uh, we can see in the scriptures clearly, it's, it's all over, woven practically at every point, almost within every chapter of those who in their own wisdom and their own worldly character and their own ignorant teaching misrepresent him. False teachers are those who teach what is what? False. And so we find that in the majority of the book of Jude. We find that in 2 Peter 2. Find that in 2 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 6. These are just the high points. Galatians 1, 2 Corinthians 15, and the list just literally continues on and on. And so the Lord has these standards. You know, our elders, part of what we're doing in our meetings, in the beginning of our, our elder meetings every other week, is we're looking throughout the scriptures. We spent all the time we could in Acts chapter 20, and now we've moved into 1 Timothy, all the uh, um, time that we can to just look at these passages for ourselves and to see what the spiritual leader is actually to be, what the church is actually to be, to almost avoid any kind of worldly or traditional uh, influence in that sense. We want to see what God's word says because we want to be faithful to him. And so when we move now into First Thessalonians, 
where nearly for a chapter and a half, Paul is defending his ministry. And as he's done numerous times in the New Testament, I read one of those to you earlier. Here he gives us yet more information, different aspects about genuine ministry. And he's doing so through a defense. He's saying, this is what we were. We weren't like what everybody outside the church is saying. Here's what we were. And it's clear by him saying this, this is God-acceptable ministry, ways of ministry, God-accepting ways. They're the ways in which are right. And so what authentic ministry should be like, Paul gives us here, and it's the ministry of him and his companions. He ministered with his companions, his fellow ministers, in this way. And these people in the church of Thessalonica already knew this. He wasn't making a defense to the people within the congregation. You can see that. Just look down at your text with me. In chapter 2, Paul begins his defense. Just look at verse 1. With He begins his defense saying in verse 1, For you yourselves, what? No, they already know this. In verse 2, he says, As you... No, as you know. In verse 5, he says, as you know. In verse 9, he says, you remember. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. In verse 11, he says, for you know. They know, and by God's grace, this church hadn't wavered in what they knew about their leaders. They haven't wavered. This church hadn't wavered in what they knew about about their leaders, and Paul was so relieved to hear about this because when Timothy brought back the report about them, we see Paul's joy and relief. So those who are outside the Thessalonican church are saying things about the leaders to pull these people away from the faith because the gospel's a threat to their lives. Paul leaves He's nervous that those who are claiming these things outside of the church are influencing those within the church, would draw them away from Christ. But they knew the authentic ministry of the leadership. And so when Paul writes and Timothy goes and then Timothy brings back this report, Paul is so relieved that they hadn't budged. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel about your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And why was Paul so relieved? Well, because he knew that part of Satan's strategy was to cause unhealth in the believers And to do so, 
eventually making them walk away from the faith. And one of the ways to do this, to cause unhealth in the believer and to cause them to maybe eventually walk away from the faith itself is to make them not trust their leadership. Paul knew Satan's strategy, that this is the way in which he seeks to pull people away from the faith, to make them doubt their leaders, and then doubt the content of the teaching, and then bring division with them and the leader, and then to encourage bitterness towards the leader. And when that happens, and I've seen it, the soul then begins to isolate themselves more and more emotionally, physically, spiritually. They begin to listen to themselves, to their own thoughts more and more and more. They begin to stop listening to instruction from the word. They begin trusting in their own wisdom and start seeing things from their own perspective. Then they begin to live very emotionally and miserably eventually throwing their hands up in the air, becoming like the world. And then they find a pseudo version of Christianity or religion that soothes their inflammation of heart. And from there, walk away from faithfulness, faithfulness to the Lord. And this is what Paul was afraid of, which is why he sent Timothy. Read chapter three, verses one through five. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort your, you in, the, in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That somehow the tempter would draw you away and that our labor then would be in vain. You might have received it when we were there, but you've now walked away from it. He was afraid that they would turn from the Lord. Paul was afraid that these people whom he loved so deeply, whom he so deeply wanted to follow God, would turn away from the Lord, turn his, their backs on, on the Lord and follow the world. And because of this and other types of suffering, Satan's work was to cause them to turn away from their leaders, specifically saying that the teaching was false, that it had false motives, that it was in line with the false teachers and the false prophets of the day. Satan was working through people outside the church, and we can see some of it from the account of the situation in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17. You can go there and look and see, not now, um, what was happening as they were establishing the Thessalonian church. And we can gather more from what we know about the political situation that's happening at this point. They want autonomy from Rome and they're intimidated by this gospel message and they don't want Rome to 
to come and take over again in Thessalonica. And so they don't, their, their condemnation of the church and its leadership is also self-serving so that they can maintain their freedom. But though we don't know exactly what was being said about the leaders outside, from outside of the church, we can infer the particulars from what Paul is defending against in chapter two. Listen now, you can infer the particulars from what Paul is defending against in chapter two. In chapter two, you can spend some time there and you can look at what Paul is saying, this is what we were not. And this is what we were to understand a little bit about what was being said about them. And so in the uniqueness of the particular section that we're in today in chapter two, verses seven through 12, among all other places in the scripture, we see another description of genuine spiritual leadership. Paul is defending against these outside voices. The church is stable. They already know, but he's defending for future protection for them. He's listing what they were and what they weren't. And Paul here uses two pictures. So our headings today in these two pictures, as Paul makes this defense to the church he loves that are standing firm in light of the outside talk, he gives us these two pictures of what genuine spiritual leadership involve. And number one, it's motherly care. And number two, it's fatherly leadership. He uses two pictures here. Number one, motherly care, and that's in verses seven through nine. And number two, it's fatherly leadership. This is in verses 10 through 12. These would be our two main headings today, uh, motherly care and fatherly leadership. And this is another marker, another character, another uh, aspect of the conduct of the genuine spiritual leader as Bo preached last week, and God-exalting ministry. This is, these are aspects, elements of what Paul is claiming is genuine, authentic ministry. The Thessalonians knew it, but Paul still speaks to it here. And so why is this relevant for us? Why is it relevant that we see these two pictures of genuine spiritual leadership as Paul describes them here? Well, first, the ministers need the word of God just like the congregation does. And so they are to see what they are to be. Number two, though no minister is perfect, we as a congregation, as we assess the world, the church, our church, we must expect the God-given standards in his word and assess by those values not by pragmatic, worldly values. The pastor or the spiritual leader doesn't need to be the great business entrepreneur who can gather a whole lot of people and a lot of money and be successful. That means nothing to God. He needs to be the one who is faithful. That means everything to God. And so number three, then, it's relevant because we must protect against Satan's schemes to cause disunity and distrust. That's exactly why Paul is defending here. He wants these believers not to be torn away, to believe the message and to continue. 
And so this is just relevant in that way. And then the fourth reason of why this is relevant is this is just the next text as we make our way verse by verse through this book. <laughs> so all of God's word is relevant, no matter which passage we're in. So let's move into Paul's first metaphor or first picture here, or first description here of genuine spiritual leadership in this defense. And it involves number one, motherly care. Motherly care. And these, we see this in verses seven through nine. Motherly care, verses seven through nine. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In other words, the authentic God-exalting pastor, who is a male, by the way, must have this element of motherly care. Motherly care. These are the verses that help us to see this. The genuine, authentic, God-exalting spiritual leader should be like a mother ministering from a place of deep love, not from a place of selfish ambition or sordid gain or deceitful scheming or impure motives, all of which precede this verse. Paul is saying, I wasn't this, but I was this. And so we know the contrast involves that selfish ambition, sordid gain, deceitful scheming, impure motives. No, we were like a nursing mother. And so again, this must come from a place of deep love. This is what Paul and his companions were. This is what he uses as the defense against what's being said about them from outside the church to try to pull people away. You have to remember also, those who are outside the church are saying, these leaders are trying to pull you away from Rome. They're trying to pull you away from Caesar. They're preaching a false gospel. This doesn't accord with Judaism. All of these claims because the message is going to impact their lives. It's going to impact their selfish lives outside the church. And so they are clamoring to get these people not to believe the message and to continue on the path because it's threatening to them. And so they're saying all of these false things about the leaders, and some of that is that there's selfish ambition, sordid gain, deceitful scheming, impure motives. And Paul says, no, we weren't like that. We were like a nursing mother. This comes from a place of deep love, he says. And so Paul here is using this conduct to prove the authenticity of the ministry, which by inference tells us this is the authentic pattern of ministry, one of the pictures. Now, we understand here that this proves that the person is doing the right thing for the right, with the right heart, with the right motives. This is what Paul is attesting to here in summary. We had the right motives. We were doing the right things. We had the right heart. I mean, in summary, that's essentially what he's saying. We were staying true. And he wants these people to keep going and to keep growing. They already believe this. They already saw this pattern, but he wants them to keep going and to keep growing. And there's going to be continued accusations in the future. But he says, you remember, you know, just think back. And he wants 
them not to be hindered by the enemy in their growth. He's happy that they've made it to this point, but he wants them to keep going. And so he gives this picture of what they were like. Verse seven, we were like, but we were gentle among you like a, like a nursing mother. And this is wonderful because you have to remember here that Paul is so proud of this church. Before we even get to the particulars of what this actually means, you have to understand that this, Paul is so proud of this church. They're doing well. You're, they're, they're a true church. Remember what he said so far, just for a second, okay? Put a bookmark in this nursing mother idea, and just for a second, think through the progression of thought that Paul has brought them through so far in this book. Remember this. He calls them a true church. Remember in the beginning of chapter one? He says, you're a true church. You have true union with God. You have true union with God through Jesus Christ. God has elected you. He has given you salvation. These ministers, Paul says of himself and the other ministers, we're always thanking God for you. We're constantly thanking God for you for what he's done in you. And we're doing so in prayer. And we're doing so as we remember the evidences of your salvation. Your faith has produced works. Your love has produced strenuous effort. Your, your serve and service, your hope in Christ has produced great perseverance. We've seen all these elements of of salvation, which give us confidence that God has elected you, that God has elected you. You are the elect ones of God. They received the gospel. They weren't deterred by suffering. Their lives changed. Remember all of this? They received the authentic gospel. They weren't deterred by suffering. Their lives had changed. Other people had seen the change of life because it was so real. Not only were their lives changing, but remember they were evangelizing now. They were sending out the gospel from this place. They were repenting. They were serving. They had set their hope on their future. This was a wonderfully, truly saved church. Paul celebrates it. But remember as chapter two started, as Bo preached last week, Paul is now beginning this defense And he's really connecting them back, listen close now, to verse five. You say, this kind of seems like it's coming out of nowhere. No, it's connecting back to verse five. Remember in verse five of chapter one when Paul says, we came in an authentic way with an authentic gospel and that's what you received. Well, verse one of chapter two, he's picking back up there. And that's where this is connected. He's picking back up there and he's giving them this explanation of their authentic ministry towards these believers. And Paul says in chapter two, as Bo preached, that even though there was risk, there was threat, there was pain, there was ill treatment, there was reason to stop, they were courageous in God. They believed the truthfulness of the message and they brought the message to these Thessalonians even though there would be risk involved for the ministers, even though there was risk involved, there would be reason for the ministers to not go through with this. They had suffered before. They knew what was coming. There was threat. There was danger. They had confidence in God, the gospel, and so they came to this place to preach to them the gospel. They were called to the ministry by God, and so they fulfilled their calling. And so Paul hears speaks of these genuine methods and these genuine motives 
of their ministry. This is who Paul has been. This is why he came. This is what he's produced in this Thessalonian church. And so Paul here now continues as we get to this verse in verse seven and says, not only was our our motives right, not only did we trust in God, we didn't care what anyone else thought. We just wanted to be faithful to him and teach the word. Not only that, but think about the conduct of our ministry. Think about the conduct now of our ministry. He says, remember this, as those who are outside of the church tempt you. In verse seven, he says, we were like nursing mothers. Genuine ministry has this element of motherly love, motherly care. Now, what does this mean? Well, Paul just gives us particulars here. So these are kind of like sub points, but I'm not gonna give you any sub points on the screen, just more organically, but think through it. This nursing mother is the central idea, but there's elements all around this idea that gives us a description of what he means by this nursing mother. First is gentleness. He says we were, what? What? Verse seven, gentle. We were gentle among you. By the way, moms, by way of inference, you can also understand what the godly mother is supposed to be from this passage, though this is speaking to the spiritual leader. But we were gentle. We were gentle among you. And so we understand that this is the first element of what he's saying. Go back to verse five of chapter two. We never came with words of flattery. What's flattery, right? We, we already understood that it's a, it's a selfish, these are selfish words for personal gain. That's not what they came with. They didn't come with empty words of affirmation for selfish gain. Empty, that's what flattery is. Empty words of affirmation for selfish gain. That's not why they came, right? They didn't come for that. That's not the pattern of their ministry. If we continue on in verse five, we didn't, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, five, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. We weren't in it for what was for, for the money. God's wit, God is witness. He sees our hearts. Verse six, nor did we seek glory from people. Uh, we, we didn't uh, desire to be made much of, whether from you or from others. Even though we could have made demands, remember in 2 Corinthians, what I read earlier, Paul says we have authority because of what it allows us to do in your lives. Well, we could have made demands because of the authority because that God has given, but we, we didn't. Verse seven, instead, we were gentle. We were gentle. And so this is the idea, verse seven, as he speaks of this, the contrast of gentleness, it connotes, this word connotes kindness. In other words, we wanted your good. We wanted your good. We were gentle among you. We were kind, like a mother is with their baby. He just, she just wants their good. We wanted what was good for you. We wanted what would truly bring you great, lasting, permanent joy. We wanted what would be the best thing for you. And this is what he claims. We were gentle, we were kind. We tried to help you get there. 
We know in 2 Timothy, Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so that those who are believing lies may be turned from the lies to the truth. We know that this doesn't negate strong leadership. That's the second part of this. But there's a kindness, a gentleness, because he wanted their good. The second element of this, and I'm just going to move through this, just make note of all these aspects. There's this gentleness or this kindness, one that just wants good. But there's the second one of being in the midst of them. The second element of motherly, of a nursing mother, of, is being in the midst of them. There's a certain presence that must take place with motherly care. Where do we get this? Well, he says, we were gentle, what? Gentle, what? Among you. Now that might be missed, but that's part of this. That's the next element here. We were gentle, literally in the Greek, in the middle of you. We were gentle in the middle of you. We didn't live separate, lofty lives apart from you. We were with you. We were with you. As you were, so were we. We lived on your level. We wanted your good. We were serving you for your good as we lived among your lives. Think about a mother who's gentle, who wants the good of their child, just wants what's good for them, which ultimately is God and his truth and his word. But that mom who is light years ahead in terms of intellectual ability, able to sustain their own lives, could really do whatever they want, could travel, could purchase, could, could work, could read, could listen, could watch, could do whatever they want, instead dedicate their lives to living in the midst of these little people. Right? Living in the midst of them. Are their lives becoming connected? He says, we were gentle, we were kind, we wanted your good, we lived among you, in the middle of you, in the midst of you. And so there's this next element of self-sacrificing provision. Self-sacrificing provision. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. Now that's the central piece here. But he says, in essence, like a nurse, but a nurse who is the mother, a nursing mother taking care of and it's emphatic here, her own children. A nursing mother taking care of her own children. And there's a provision here. There's a provision, the gentleness, the living in the midst of them, and then the nurturing, the self-sacrificing provision that we get from the picture of a nursing mother, which requires self-sacrifice. What is their self-sacrifice for? It requires self-sacrifice. For what? For nutrition. They sacrificed, this is the picture, right, of a nursing mother. There's the sacrifice of oneself for the purpose of nutrition. And you think about the pastoral role 
the spiritual leader. He sacrifices time and energy and sleep and comfort to feed the people the truth of the word of God accurately and clearly. There's a self-sacrifice for the purpose of the nutrition of the people. Just like a mother needs to sacrifice herself and her comforts and her energy and her sleep to provide for the nutrition of the, of the child. There's, there's self-sacrifice for the comfort and the soothing. You think about the nursing mother who provides not only nutrition, but comfort, soothing. There's a sacrifice of their time to spend with them, to listen to them. There's a sacrifice of self-sacrifice for the purpose of immunity. This nursing mother provides this immunity and to think about the spiritual leader as one who warns about the enemy, about the false teaching, about false ministry, and provides this defense for his people. So he says, we were gentle, tried to be as kind as we could. We lived in the midst of you, and we provided through self-sacrifice. And he says there then, doing this for her own child, doing this for her own child and uh, taking care of her own child. So there's this provision for needs. There's this taking care of various needs, gentleness, presence, self-sacrificing provision and something very similar, taking care of the needs. And this is what Paul and, companion, uh, and his companions did for the church spiritually. They took care of all the needs. And this is what elders do. This is what pastors do. This is what spiritual leaders do. We're going to take care of all the needs to create this facilitation of spiritual growth for the people. But what Paul's speaking here of what they've done in a spiritual sense, this is what a mother might do in a physical, emotional mental sense, taking care of all the needs. And Paul says we were like this as spiritual mothers. And then there's this emphasis of close relationship, gentleness, presence, self-sacrificing provision, taking care of needs. And as we get to the end of verse seven, there's this emphasis on a close relationship because he says taking care of her own children in the Greek, the way in which this is worded is, is emphatic. It's her own children. And so what does he mean here? Well, this is more than just, hey, we have a relationship because we hang out a lot, right? What he means here is there's a commitment. There's commitment. There's God-ordained assignment there's God-ordained assignment. The mother is, is assigned by God to have responsibility for these particular, what? Children. And in such a way, the spiritual leader also has this God-ordained assignment for the congregation. He is their pastor, or they are their pastors, and the congregation is their congregation. 
So, so far in verse seven, the genuine spiritual leader is depicted as a mother, which involves gentleness, presence, self-sacrificing provision, care for the needs, and having this God-ordained responsibility and commitment. But there's more here in terms of the mother. Look at verse eight. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul starts this verse, verse eight, with the word thus or so in the Greek. Thus. And essentially what he's doing, listen now, is he's connecting us still with the previous thought. Like a nursing mother, thus or so, we did this. We did this. Right? So this is connecting us still to the picture of the spiritual leader as a mother. And he gives this next element of deep love. There's this next element of deep love. He says in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you. Literally in the Greek, it means thus having longings for you. And this word is incredible to think through. What it means in particular here is it means to have a strong yearning, a strong yearning. And what's really incredible about this this word, and you can relate, it's a strong yearning that's almost painful. It's a love that's so deep that it actually hurts. If you're a parent, you can relate to this. You think about your children. You think about how much you love them. You watch them, and not only in times when they're doing wrong, times when they're doing just fine. And you think about how much you love them, and it's so deep that it actually hurts. Can you relate? And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that we, our love for you is so deep, our desire for you to, to have what is good and true and right is so deep that it was actually hard to bear. It's actually painful. This is what he says that they felt. Their care ran so deep that their heart hurt. Paul says this is genuine spiritual leadership. Which brings us to the next element, which is connected to that deep love that I just described, and it's active service. Now, this is big. Listen. He says in verse 8, being, so affe- being affectionately desirous of you or having this great longing for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Now, here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, because of our great love, our deep love, our longing for you that was so deep that it actually hurt, it led to this active, self-sacrificing, intentional service for you. Paul says our love for you was so deep that we were determining to do some things for you. Namely, get you the gospel and give you our lives. This is, this is what we see. This is an incredible picture because you know as 
a mother, as a parent? What drives you to sacrifice at times that are inconvenient for you? To give this energy when you're tired, to wake up early, to go to bed late, to spend time, to have that one more conversation with your child when you don't want to have another conversation with your child about the gospel and about sin and about obedience. Why do you do that when it would be so easy to just be numb to it? Well, because you have this deep, almost painful love for them, wanting their future, wanting their salvation, wanting their eternal life, wanting their protection from sin. And so it's so deep that it leads to this active service. If you're numb to that feeling, you won't actively serve because you don't care. You don't care about the outcome of the person. But that's not true about a mom. And therefore, what he says here is, we cared so much about you that we were determining, in particular, listen close now, to give to you the gospel of God, he says, meaning it is from God and about God, and therefore will save you, give you eternal life, make you right with God, give you righteousness before him, and give you all that it offers in its promises and its blessings and its safeties and its protections and its provisions. It'll turn you away from sin, this gospel will. It'll protect you from the dangers and the consequences of sin. We, want, we were so deeply loving you that we had to give you this gospel, which was the truth, it would save you and change you. This deep love led to this active service. And then he says, not only the gospel, but also our own selves. Literally here, the word that's used, also our own souls. Give you the gospel and our souls. Every effort, every ounce of affection, every care, every spiritual insight that we had, every piece of energy, because, and he says it again at the end of verse 8, you had become so dear to us. This is motivated by love. Such deep love, literally, because beloved you had become to us at the end of verse 8. And so this, this is the picture of active service. Active service coming from a deep, a deep love. And then verse nine, he says, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And by the way, you can see all the references to you remember, you are witnesses, um, you know, right? And, um, and so he's saying once again in verse nine, you remember brothers, you know, you, were, you haven't been carried away by the tempter, those outside the church. You're our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking directly to them. These believers have responded in the right way. We've already seen it. But Paul is just continually reflecting with them, addressing them directly, strengthening them, keeping the mindset. 
So in verse nine, he uses four, which is still again connecting us with the thought previously mentioned of the motherly sacrifice and service. Four, here's more of what we've done as spiritual mothers. Listen close. Here's more of what we've done as spiritual mothers. And here's, he gives us this last element. And really it's just doing whatever's necessary for their salvation and spiritual growth doing whatever's necessary for their salvation and spiritual growth. Here's what he says. We labored and we toiled. These two words point to two different aspects, two sides of the same coin. It's the difficulty of the job and the effort to do it. The difficulty of the job and the effort that comes along with doing it. He says here, remember in chapter one, verse three, where he says this extenuating effort, this labor of love, this love, the fruit of the spirit that was produced in you has produced this extenuating service to Christ and his church. That was a fruit or an evidence of salvation. Well, the same word is used here, this extraordinary effort. We've done this extraordinary effort. What'd they do? Well, before the church had even had the ability or the conviction to support the ministers, that were working on their behalf, what'd they do? These ministers provided for their own needs. Before this church was even aware that they needed the message that these ministers were bringing to them, they didn't know the gospel. They had never heard the gospel. They didn't know they needed this gospel. So why would they support these ministers who were ministering to them this gospel? (laughs) We got no need for you. And before that was even there, before the congregation was even formed, before they had the conviction, before they had the maturity, before they had the provisions, Paul and these fellow ministers, along with two gifts from the Philippian church that were sent over that was now a little bit older than the Thessalonican church, right? He went to Philippi just right before. They're a little bit older. They understand this now. They're sending gifts. But in addition to that, these ministers engaged in probably Paul's trade of what? Tent making. They worked night and day. Why? So that they could just continue to get these folks the gospel. They did whatever was necessary for their salvation and sanctification. That's the picture here. This is the picture. And that's what a mom does, right? I mean, I'm gonna stay up late. Wake up early, do the dishes, the laundry, the pickups, the grocery, the shopping, the planning. Why? So I can just keep on going with you. Keep on helping you. This is the picture. So we're gonna take the second one in a shorter form, but there's less of it. But let me just give you this summary here. Paul says... Here's the picture of genuine spiritual leadership. It's one of gentleness, presence, self-sacrifice, provision and care, commitment, deep love, service, and just this costly effort for their sake. You know, this is the same picture that Moses uses of his leadership in Numbers chapter 11, verse 12. Paul's probably picking up on Moses's language. And it's also a picture that Jesus uses of his offer to Israel in Luke chapter 13, verses 30, verse 34. And we can look by way of inference that this is the expectation of a godly mother. This is the expectation of a godly mother 
And this is what Paul uses to defend the authentic, genuine, God-exalting ministry that he and his companions had in this church. But there's one more picture to give in his defense, and that is one of, a, of fatherly leadership. Fatherly leadership, motherly care, fatherly leadership. Look at verses 10 through 12. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own glory and kingdom. Now, the reason why we're dividing the matter, I'm gonna move a little quickly here. The reason why we're dividing the matter here is that verse 11 begins with just as. It's translated in the ESV as for, but it's literally just as. That's, the, that's what's said there. So just as, and it really just simply connects us. This verse 11 and 12, it still connects us with verse 10. And so now verse 10 essentially is moving into this next picture, which is really the central piece of it is verse 11, which is the father and his children. So it's verse 11 is connected from, to verse 10 and it's connected to this new picture, which is why we divide, divide the matter here. And so once again, verse 10, you are what? Witnesses, they already know this, they've seen this. And so what is he saying here? Well, first of all, let me point out to you also, not only are you witnesses, but who's also a witness, verse 10? God, They're up, he's upping the accountability and the truthfulness of what he's saying. You've all seen it, and so is God. God knows, God's seen, God knows the heart, God's watched all the different pieces of this. And then Paul speaks of this first element of the fatherly aspect of genuine spiritually leadership, of genuine spiritual leadership, and it's that of a godly example. There's a godly example. There's really only two elements here. A godly example is the first one. He says, you are witnesses and God also, how, look at this now, we're almost done, how holy and how, what? Righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. What he's speaking here is of consistent conduct. One who is genuinely godly in all environments. He is the same at all times. The same one at home that he is in the church. The same one while he's ministering as he is when he's not. He's holy. This deals with this word in verse 10, Holy deals with the inner man and the outer man. Listen close. He's genuinely set apart for God. God has preeminence in his heart. Therefore, it comes out in his life. In other words, he's the real deal. He's the real deal. This is what the spiritual leader must be. He's not perfect, but he's the real deal. He genuinely is what he is supposed to be by God's standards. Then he says he's also righteous. Now this deals with the outward behavior in this context here towards God and man. He's genuinely obedient. He conforms to God's standards. What God says in his word is how he lives. And then he says how blameless. Blameless before man and before God again. 
No accusation from outside the church could legitimately be brought against them. Blameless. This deals with the openness of being blamed. No accusation could legitimately be brought against them from God or from man. They lived in an open and consistent way. And of course, again, they were not perfect because there was only one man who was. But this was the direction of their character and their conduct. And by the way, both parents should be this godly example. As you speak about parents, it's not that the man should be godly and the woman should not be. But it's that this is to be modeled by as a part of the role of the father. And Paul uses this picture to describe their character. It's inherent in the biblical role of a pastor or a shepherd or an overseer or an elder. He is to be an example. He is to be an example. And so then he, in verse 11, notes this picture, for you know how like a father with his children, which is the exa- what the example is connected to. Again, the father with his own children, emphatic, meaning that there's this sense of responsibility and commitment for these particular people, just like for these particular children from a dad. And then it moves on to this next element, which is what we'll finish with. And that is not only an example, but also a leader. That of a leader. Look at verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. There's three elements here. Exhortation. Look at what the father-like spiritual leader has done. There's this exhortation. And really the exhortation is really, can be summarized as or stated as instruction. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to be. Instruction, motivation, admonition. This is who you're supposed to be. That's like what a father does first. Here's what's the right way. This is what the word says. Here's what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. And then there's this next element. But first, let me note, let me note this. He says, we exhorted what? Each one of you. There's this individual focus of the father on the on, on each individual child in the same way the pastor spends this focus on each of, his, of those entrusted to his care. But not only is there instruction, but there's this encouragement. He says, we've exhorted you and then we encourage you. The word here literally means to come alongside, to come alongside. And so here's the instruction. We're gonna come alongside and then here's the next element, the charge. And that's the imploring or the urging or the warning. In other words, here's the consequences if you don't do this, right? This is, this is I've ex- even bringing in your own example. I've experienced the consequences of this, but here's what God says about the consequences. You must do this or be this, or respond like this. It's instruction, come alongside, and then urge and implore and warn with the consequences. This is the godly spiritual leader. 
And what is he leading the child? What is the spiritual leader leading the people to do? It's at the end of verse 12. To walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk synonymous in the New Testament with just a lifestyle. Walk by the Spirit. In other words, live by the Spirit. Walk this lifestyle worthy, so according to God's standards, walk in a manner worthy according to God's standards of God. Who, by the way, calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What Paul is referencing back here at this point is their election, their salvation, and their future glorification. Walk in a way that is in accordance with those who have been saved as you have, who are in his kingdom, who will see his glory. So church, as we close this, Paul then is finishing up this portion of his defense by giving two spiritual pictures of what the genuine spiritual leader should be. And that is one of having motherly care, which is gentle, kind, self-sacrificing. And there's one of fatherly leadership, which is an example and which is instructive and which is guiding. To all walk in a manner worthy of God so that these people who have been saved by God would live in light of their salvation. This is what we are to expect from the church. This is what our elders aspire to be. This is what you should be by way of inference as a mother and a father, and also as a spiritual leader for those you lead around you. And so by God's grace, this is also what we should expect of those we see in churches around the world. These are just part of the elements of what God's word says about spiritual leadership. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you by your grace that you um, have given us time to look at it this morning. And uh, I pray by your mercy that you would help us then to continue to follow your word and what it says with all of our hearts in Jesus' name.